Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to another episode of Swings and Mishes. We hope you are staying safe right now during everything that is going on around the world. Um, we are very excited to be back with another episode. I, of course, am Jeremy Taché, your producer, joined as always by Craig Mish. Craig, how are you holding up during all of this? Yeah, and and really just you know kind of holding up, as you said. I hmm. think that's that's the best way to put it at this point. And I'm just I'm so uh, proud of all of the first responders and hmm. and all the people in the medical field who are attacking this virus and. You know, certainly that's the most important thing that I want to say. Um, and I know that people have, you know, certainly lost their lives. And I know that you're listening to this podcast, not for a lot of coronavirus talk, and I'm going to get over that real quick. But it's just real important for people to know just how serious this has been. And I wanted to make sure that I did my part in mentioning it and just in really saluting the people who have been in the front lines of this all over the world, including here in South Florida. So uh, start off with that. As far as me personally, I miss baseball a lot. It's really difficult to not have it. It's difficult to not go to games. It's difficult to not cover Major League Baseball. I think I speak for all of the media when it comes to that. It's still very uncertain as to where we're headed. I think a few days ago, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, you could see that I put my suggestion out there for what I thought would be a decent idea of having a Grapefruit League versus Cactus League sort of season. And then Bob Nightingale, uh, you know, found out that I guess that that was a possibility. I'm not sure where that is and where that still is. And, and health is going to be the most important part in all of this. Uh, I hope there is a season. I do believe there will be one, Jeremy. I do believe that they'll figure out some sort of way to broadcast these games on TV. And, and, and there is you know, clearly money involved in that process. And that's really what drives everything. And they need to have safety first. But I believe that they're going to find a way to, to – to have some sort of season and have it on TV, whether or not it's realistic, whether or not that mm -hmm. happens is still to be determined. And I know that people don't want to hear that. They want to hear, you know, Craig, what are you hearing on the inside and what are people telling you? I can tell you that the people who are making these decisions while they are trying to do their best to get it done, they're just as confused as we are. They're just as uncertain as we are. And so that's kind of where we stand. Um, you know, since the last time that we talked, Jeremy, me personally, what do I do? I do the same thing that you guys are doing every single day. I try to exercise. I have, I'm fortunate to have a, a treadmill in my house. So I run on the treadmill every day. I host a show on a television slash radio show on sports grid every day from 11 to one Eastern. Mm -hmm. And I play in the backyard with my son. He's getting really good at baseball and he's improving every single day. And, and this is something that I did with my dad, but I, but I've, I've had a lot more time than I've, than my father ever had to, to play with me than I've played with my son in my backyard every single day. So just trying to stay busy, trying to stay healthy. And with my family, my daughter, my son, and my wife, just uh, you know, taking this opportunity to spend a lot of quality time with them that who knows, in a few months, that may be gone. And this may be the time in our lives that we'll look back on and say, we were able to spend more time with one another than we ever thought we would have. So trying to look mm -hmm. at the positive, I know you're a very positive person as well. So that, that's kind of the, the life that, that I've been living. How about you? Well, thank you for that. Yeah, it's, um, it's been similar, you know, uh, over around these parts, still going into work uh, at the TV station, you know, trying to spend as much time with the family as possible. I have a younger brother who is home from college. I live with my parents. So the four of us are, we're sort of a unit again, thrust back together. Uh, during all of this, but feeling very fortunate that everyone in my life uh, presently is is happy and healthy, feeling very lucky for that. And, um, you know, continuing to do this, continuing to work over at Channel 7. So feeling very grateful 
um, you know, you do mention that, that, uh, you know, there could be the two leagues split up. And, and as of yesterday, you know, sports were actually deemed essential business here in the state of Florida. Uh, so maybe that will open the, the waves for a possibility Hopefully. of some baseball here in Florida without fans, but at least it would be a step, as you just mentioned. Um, is there any sort of baseball news, you know, as, as this is what, the, you know, this podcast is based around is ordinarily our news and our interviews. And we have a great interview coming for you guys. But is there any sort of news that you'd like to touch on uh, before we do get to that interview? Yeah, I, I think that it's, it's limited to the things that, that you've probably heard thus far. For me personally, I've tried on my end to stay out of the lives of a lot of people uh, in baseball, whether it's the decision-making process of running the organization and making transactions and asking about those sort of questions, because even though technically we are in season, a lot of people have different going on, different things going on with their families. So just to kind of mm. you know, take you behind the curtain, yeah, I mean, I'm keeping in touch. I'm texting, saying hello, making sure that everybody is okay. But I'm very much leaving a lot of the day-to-day -day in terms of baseball to the point where I know that the guys are back on the field and actually competing again. And then, and then at that point, I think it's, it's a fair assessment to start asking, um, you know, those sort of questions. So, uh, you know, Mike Hill, the president of baseball operations did a conference call with us last week where I, I wouldn't say a lot of baseball news really came out of there. The only thing that I found particular interesting was that, uh, you know, that I asked Mike about the non-roster invitees. He brought up Aaron Northcraft specifically. So that's a name mm. we'll have to circle as a possibility that, if they have baseball again, that maybe would have made the team. And the same thing with Brad Boxberger. He was not as strong on Matt Kemp, who he said that got off to a slow start. And from people that I've talked to as well, uh, you know, they've kind of you know, under the understanding that Kemp didn't look as good as some people thought he was going to when they ended up signing him. That's no indictment on Matt Kemp. Look, he's at the stage of his career where he'll need to impress a team, whether it's the Marlins or someone else, to latch on and make the big league team. And he'll probably, I would guess, get another opportunity uh, fortunately for him, because of, of what's happened in a very unfortunate scenario, he's going to get another spring training to prove that he can play in the big leagues. So mm -hmm. that, those you know, very small little you know, pieces of information that we were given. Uh, Brigham, uh, the uh, relief pitcher on the Marlins, seems to be you know, still in, in a rehab process of trying to get right. Um, he's, his status has to be unclear for the season, while Ryan Stanek seems to be a little bit better, and, and Jorge Alfaro looks like he is 100%. So those are all things that in case you hadn't paid attention over the last week, that's the only newsworthy topics that I would have hmm. uh, on the, on the baseball side, Jeremy. So that, that right. kind of covers that. Well, uh, we have covered the news and we do have a really cool interview coming for you guys. And Craig, yeah, actually, I, yeah, actually, we get to that. There, there's go let ahead. Me, let me jump in. Yeah. Let me jump in with one other thing because I haven't done a lot of mentioning of this, but trust me, uh, very well aware of, of the uh, June draft that's coming up. And I do want to just, give you guys a couple of little tidbits and words on that as well as, as I as I think that I reported first or second or third I don't know but either way the draft is essentially right now either down to five rounds or ten I think ten is still in play I think there's a chance of that happening in terms of of how that affects the Marlins five would not be great ten would be better Remember, if it's only five, they're going to be competing with the rest of the league for all of these players that they've scouted because the maximum amount of money that you're going to be able to sign a free agent player that's not in the draft is $20,000, and players are going to have to make that choice as to what organization they sign with. 
And in some ways, that'll give the Marlins an advantage, and in some ways, it'll put them at a disadvantage. And I would think that with the great job that they did last year, they'd like more rounds. They'd like that to be up to 10. A lot of people have speculated as to who they may take with that pick in the first round. I can tell you that it doesn't look like uh, Spencer Torkelson is going to get down to them. I think that he'll be taken before then. And then we're wide open at that point. And all the names that you've heard are more or less the same names that are still in play for them, whether it is uh, Hancock or Lacey, those two pitchers, Austin Martin, who was another name that uh, a player that went to Vanderbilt, an infielder that I think that the Marlins would certainly have a chance of taking. And as we get closer, I'll be able to provide a lot more information on this. There's just no need right now because we're still far away from it. And we don't even know what the dynamic of the draft will be. But I would also say this. There are definitely at least one or two players that I know that the Marlins have scouted very heavily that have not come up in any of the conversations that people have had as, as to who the Marlins may take. So when that gets closer, I'll certainly give a lot more insight on that. But I would not just limit myself to those names that you keep seeing over and over again, those same four or five names. There are some other names that the Marlins like as well. And we'll surely touch on all of that as we get closer to an MLB draft that should happen. And if it is cut down to, you know, five or 10 rounds, the long-term ramifications across Major League Baseball will be very interesting. Um, so now uh, to get to the preview of our interview uh, with former Marlins pitcher, Dodgers pitcher, multiple other places, Brad Penny, uh, who we haven't heard from in a long time, a guy who is never afraid to share his thoughts on just about anything. So Craig, do you want to preview uh, what what folks are going to get right now with this interview with Brad Penny? Yeah, I, I was covering the Marlins for many, many years and in that era where Brad Penny pitched. And the reason why we're having Brad Penny on the podcast today is, first of all, he's very honest and he's very candid. And this is one of the longer interviews that we've ever done. It's kind of like, mm -hmm. honestly, a career retrospective with, with Penny, not just with the Marlins, but at the latter stages of, of his career. But I appreciate interviews and doing interviews with people that we haven't heard from in a while and so that's no indictment on any of the other members of that 2003 world series team but brad penny has has kind of taken it upon himself to start a family and i wouldn't say that he's disappeared at all he's still coaching at a local level where he lives but we just haven't heard from him all that much and he is very honest with everything that he said so <laughs> I wanted to get him on here to kind of do a little bit of a retrospective of that era that he pitched in because it does remind me a lot of what the Marlins are trying to do now. Mm. The Marlins right now are building their organization through young starting pitching. I think that that is clear to everyone at this point. And back in 1999 and 2000 and 2001, when I was going to Vieira and I was covering the Marlins spring training, it was building through the young pitching. And at that time, it was Josh Beckett, their first-round pick. It was Brad Penny, who they traded for. And it was uh, also A.J. Burnett, who they acquired as well. And not to mention Ryan Dempster needs to be brought up every single time because he was a strong part of what they were trying to accomplish. Unfortunately, they ended up moving him before the World Series in 2003. They also had some good pitchers, too, that you guys could go back and, and you know catch the videos of back in time, Carl Pavano, who I love Carl Pavano. Oh, I wish that he was best. still, he's still around these days. It's just, he, he moved and kind of got out of broadcasting and, and got out of uh, baseball to a degree. Mark Redman was there as well. Hmm. So that, that's sort of my preview. I don't want to ruin any of the, the fun details that Brad gave us and, and took us essentially inside the clubhouse of that 03 world series team. And then when he left uh, back inside the clubhouse again yeah. for a couple of the other teams that, 
that he played for. So I'll let you guys listen as Brad Penny does the talking, Jeremy. Yeah, this is a uh, this is a good one. I hope you guys enjoy. We bring a little. Uh, I think there's a lot of levity in this one, so hopefully we bring a little levity to your day. Uh, enjoy it. We will keep you guys posted as to when our next podcast is. But until then, enjoy this interview only on Swings and Mishes with Brad. And we are here with one of the best pitchers in Marlins history, 2003 World Series champion, one of the heroes of that 2003 season, and uh, and certainly has his place in Marlins history. It's it's kind of unfortunate that we haven't heard from Brad Penny in a long period of time, but hey, that's what this podcast is good for, and we're now here on Swings and Mishes. Uh, Brad, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, how are you? How is your family? How are things going for you in this difficult time? Uh, they're going going good, man. We're uh, hanging in there with this quarantine, but, you know, getting a lot of family time, a lot of family dinners, not eating out, so it's kind of nice, kind of nice and relaxing. Yeah, you know, that's the one thing that that I've said a lot is that people have asked me how I'm doing. Uh, I have a seven-year-old son, and we're in the backyard. I, I, I don't ever remember practicing this much when I was a kid with, with my dad, and so I'm taking advantage of this time with my son and my daughter and my family as well, and, um, you know, it, it, you know, Brad, it's kind of, it's been a while since, since we've, you know, sort of heard from you on the Marlins front. I know that you had a very nice, long Major League Baseball career. By the way, before we go any further, can we clear this up? Are you actually retired? I know that you, you, you kept coming back there for a while and pitching overseas and pitching in the big leagues. Do you think that you're done completely, or is there any chance in two years I'm going to hear you make it a comeback again? No, I'm done completely. Uh, just helping out with the kids around the area now and, and trying to work with high school kids around Kansas City area and, and south. But, um, no, I'm done. I feel good. I, I, I'm lucky to not have had any surgeries or, or any significant injuries in my career. So I don't think at this age I need to press that anymore. You know, the people I talked to uh, before this interview, just to get some you know, color, I always do that before my interviews, is a couple of people said, wow, Brad Penny, toughest player to ever play for the uh, Florida uh, slash Miami Marlins. I thought that was a, a pretty, pretty strong endorsement. But before we get into all that, let, let's kind of go back a little bit to how things got started for you, especially with the Marlins. Then we'll move on to the, to the latter part of your career. Uh, you get traded initially. Uh, you get traded to the Marlins. Who, who made that trade for you? Who were you in communication with when you first found out that you were joining the Florida Marlins organization? You know, it was funny because I was on that Futures All-Star game, and uh, it was in Boston at the time. It was the first one. And my dad and brother were on a flight to come meet me there. And I had just got a call, and – saying that I wasn't going to be able to do it, that I'd been traded and they weren't going to allow me to go because I was, each team had a certain amount of representatives, but they passed it and let me go anyways. And when I got on, I don't, I don't remember exactly. It might've been Rob Leary who I talked to and uh, Don Wakamatsu was my manager in double A and he called me in the office and I, I was heartbroken because I was with those guys like walk and, and the same teammates for, and the pitching coach for, you know, three years before I'd gotten traded. So I was heartbroken. I I didn't realize I took it as this team didn't want me, not this other team wanted me. But it did drive me a little bit. And the one call I do remember is, is Buck Showalter and Joe Gerziola Jr. called me. And the first thing Buck said was, was uh, I did, I, Brad, I just want you to know this was not my call. I did not want to make this trade. And Joe was on the phone with him, so it was kind of awkward. For Joe, like, now wait a minute, Buck. But it was – they needed a closer at the time. They were making a playoff run, so I, I understood it. 
but it gave me a great opportunity to come to, to Florida, an organization that was going to give me a chance and not, you know, when I got there, there's not many players get the opportunity that I got in, in all of baseball any year. They basically said, here's the ball you're pitching every five days. Learn how to pitch in the big leagues. We don't care how you do. Mm. Yeah, and, and Matt Manti was the one that went over to Arizona at that time for people you know, to jog their memory back in, in Marlins history for sure. Uh, yeah, so you, you did get the ball every five days, but it, it, just, it wasn't just you. Like, it was you, it was Josh Beckett, it was A.J. Burnett. And I think that for people who kind of, you know, can close their eyes and dream, that was like the big three of Marlins pitchers at the time, 2001, 2002, 2003. Ryan Dempster, of course, was there too. Uh, great pitcher yeah. as well in his own right. But, but it was really, you know, those three young pitchers that we thought were going to be pitching for the Marlins for a decade. Um, right. you know, what, what did you think at that time? I know that you guys kept hearing it in spring training. People kept talking about it at that time. I believe spring training was up in Melbourne when you guys were initially first, yeah. uh, coming up in the big leagues. So, I mean, did you think that too? You know, me, Josh, AJ, man, we're going to be here for a long time. We're going to pitch in the big leagues for a long time. Because it sort of, kind of feels like where the Marlins are now, building through pitching again. Yeah, I, I did think that. And, you know, even towards the end, before I got traded, I tried I tried to stay. I, I, I went to the GM, and they just couldn't do it financially. But I I tried to stay for, for a lot cheaper than what I ended up getting in L.A. So, it just didn't work out, unfortunately, because that was a good group of guys. And, and, and it amazes me that more teams don't look on how that how they handled us as young pitchers. You know, it's – I don't know how many pitchers I've seen just dominate a triple A and come up and struggle in the big leagues, and they send them right back down. You know, they if they would just allow them to pitch at the big league level, they're going to dominate a triple A forever. You know what I mean? It's not like they're going to go down and figure something out. They're going to dominate and they're going to continue to do that because they're dominating when you get to the big leagues, it's a little different. You know, you've got to pitch a little differently, and you can never learn that unless you get the opportunity. Yeah, I think maybe at that time, it, it kind of feels like, Brad, is that maybe the Marlins pre were presented with that opportunity because in the time that you were growing up with the organization, you know, clearly it was not a team, especially in 2001. And then we'll get into 2002, but really 2001 where it was – uh, you, know, a, a, you know, kind of building back up the organization, even from 1997 after the World Series. So it, it kind of feels like it was in that direction. But, um, you know, you get to 2002, and, it, and it's, you know, again, it's you, Josh, AJ, everyone is talking about that. And, and 2002 is a little bit of a, what I would call a tumultuous season, because at that point, a lot of people had you guys winning a lot of games, I think, at that time, maybe in the 80s, I mean, the predictions of maybe potentially at some point winning the division, uh, but the manager ends up getting fired. I know that there's no love lost for you and Bobby Valentine at the time. People probably don't remember this, but he gave you a nice little stare down there. Uh, John Bowles ends up getting let go. I know that you were, you were buddies with uh, Dan Maselli at the time. And at the time, they had said that the clubhouse was kind of lost by Bowlesy. And, and I was, you know, going through all this Marlins history, it's a story that I don't think that people are all that familiar with. So if you wouldn't mind, what, what kind of happened on that 2002 team before we get to the fun of the 2003? You know, it's funny with, with all that. you got to think about how many managers and pitching coaches I had in my four or five years with Florida. It was a lot. It wasn't normal. You know, it's – and I've always said this. You know, players, they hold managers and, and pitching coaches accountable for players' failure, basically. You know, I've been in several situations where, as pitchers, we weren't performing and our pitching coach gets fired. You know, very rarely – did, did it happen the other way? And that it did happen in Florida when they fired Arnsberg and Torberg. Those guys were, were great guys. We were just, 
you know, Arnie was, we were like third in the league, if I remember right, in pitching when they let him go. And they let Torberg go just because we were underperforming as a team. But they were both great guys, and I loved them. And, and you know, I, I didn't really dislike a, a lot of the managers I had throughout my career. You know, there were some that obviously don't see eye to eye with everyone, and, and Bolsey was one of those. But he was a great guy, and he gave, gave me an opportunity. And, and when I say we don't see eye to eye, it's just baseball. It's not as a human being. I think, you know, I haven't had a – bad person as my manager but I've had a lot of a lot of great people and, and and some baseball wise that I didn't get along with you know it's when they say you lost a clubhouse you know that's the big league you you should be able to as a man go into a clubhouse and handle yourself handle yourself professionally and I don't I don't necessarily think that's on the manager that's on the group of guys and the core of that team that should control that stuff in the clubhouse yeah, it, it was definitely an interesting time because, uh, you know, Tony Perez, I believe, takes over, uh, you know, toward the end of the year. Uh, you guys, I, I would say, had a good year, but fell a little bit short of, of the expectations. And so, um, you know, 2003 comes around. You mentioned Jeff Torborg. Uh, he is the manager. Um, you know, I should have mentioned that before. He's the one that ended up uh, becoming the manager of the Marlins. So uh, th- at that point, the expectations change a little bit. And as you mentioned, you guys get off to this tough start, and then things just get flat-out wild. Brad Ardsberg's let go. At the time, Brad, I had heard that A.J. Burnett was super upset about uh, Arnie being let go at that time. And I, I can't imagine what you guys must have been feeling because we're, we're going to get to this. You guys go on probably the most epic, one of the most epic runs in baseball history from that point forward to win the World Series. But there's no way you could have possibly thought that there was even a chance when all of that happened in '03. No, I, I agree with you. And, you know, AJ wasn't the only one that was mad. We loved Arnie. Arnie was one of the hardest working pitching coaches that I had ever seen. There wasn't a, if I said, Arnie, I need to do this. It'd be what time I'm there. You know, he was ready and available and he wanted to do anything he could do to make you better. And, you know, he was more than a pitching coach to us. He was, you know, a friend, family, whatever you want to say, but we were real, real tight with Arnie. And, you know, I don't know the, the, the thing that people get, confused is there's more to it always you know and I'm assuming this I don't know but we don't know what goes on upstairs we don't know Arnie was like me in a lot of ways that we kind of stood up for what we believed in and weren't afraid to not hold back you know where we're not politically correct so I'm sure something happened and something was said I don't know this but you know, what goes on up there and what goes down on down in the clubhouse that's two different stories and two different things so I can't really you know, yeah, we were all mad, but if I'm if I'm upstairs, I might have made the same decision they they did. You never know. Okay, so so Jack McKeon, Brad becomes the manager. He walks in the clubhouse in 2003. What does he say to you guys? And he was just he was fiery. It was funny. It was like we were, you know, he's more old school, but it was funny because we were we had to get, you know, at first nobody liked Jack because he was so. First of all, we love. It wasn't that we didn't like Jack. We loved Torber. Mike Torberg was an awesome manager, an awesome guy, and he was a player's guy. And Jack was a little bit different in the fact that if you – which I don't mind because nobody can ever – you being a, a member of the press, nobody can ever write anything bad about me if I'm doing my job. If I'm not, I deserve it. So that didn't really bother me with Jack. It, it was – Jack would call you out in the paper where a lot of a lot of players don't like that. I, You know, you can call me out if I did bad. If I do good, you're not going to call me out. So I just tried to do good, and if I didn't, I deserved it. But they were real different in that fact, and it made a lot of people mad. And 
But Jack was the kind of guy that he would make you mad enough to make you better. I mean, I can remember being so mad at Jack going out there and throwing seven seven shutout in. <laughs> yeah. But he knew that's how it was. Make me mad and I'll be better. Yeah, and, and, and that worked, um, you know, for, for a long period of time. And and I would and I'll ask you this though, without the the call ups of that season, because I think that that's really where where things sort of sort of changed. And and you could kind of tell me because you were there. I'd love to hear any opinions from you. But Dontre Willis comes up, and of course Miguel Cabrera goes on to have a Hall of Fame career, and Jeff Conine is is brought back in the fold. But what was that like secret sauce during that season? People still tell me to this day. Yes, Jack McKeon was a great manager. But man, every button this guy pushed, whether it looked like the right move or the wrong move, ended up working, and it was like all things just kind of happened. Like, what was it? What was the secret of that season? More times than not, when you're talking about Jack pushing the wrong button, it was the wrong button, but it always worked. I mean, you're exactly right. I could, one thing that sticks out in my mind is in Wrigley, they bring Farnsworth in. We had the bases loaded, I think. We had Lenny Harris on the bench and Mike Mordecai. And Lenny's the all-time pinch hit leader, you know, so he, he gets Mordecai and everybody in the dugout is like, this is in the NLCS and everybody in the dugout's like, what is he doing? And Mordecai comes and hits a ball either in the gap or off the wall and we score three runs. Everybody's like, oh my, it just, it just worked out. But, you know, I can remember that off season when we got Juan Pierre and Juan Pierre is a big key to the attitude of that team and just the whole team in general. He ended up not having a place to stay. I'm like, man, I'm seeing we can just stay with me. And Pembroke Pine, so he stayed with me, and, and I'll never forget, man, I'd be running at night, getting ready for spring training, and Juan, being in great shape, and me trying to get in shape, would be running backwards, looking at me, like, come on, let's push it, let's go a little further, you know, we're going to we're gonna win a World Series this year, and I'm thinking, man, this, he wasn't here last year to see <laughs> how our team actually is, but that attitude, man, it's just, it, it, it wears on you, and you're like, you know what, you're right, and I did run that little extra, and I did do the, the little extra just because I had someone to hold me accountable. Yeah, and, But I think uh, that team that was different, too, in the fact that when we went to dinner, I mean, I played for a lot of teams. When we went to dinner that year with that specific group of guys, there was, I don't know, 15 to 20-something to guys going to dinner every time together. And I've never seen that. It's usually groups of four to six, you know, and kind of this group hangs with this group. But that team was – everyone cared about each other. Yeah, and and no doubt that that 2003 team is you know, the the best team a lot of people feel in Marlins history. It was not bought; it was essentially earned in 2003. Juan Pierre now working with this version of the Miami Marlins. We'll get into that uh, in a minute. Also, you know, Carl Pavano, Mark Redman. Let's not lose sight of how good those guys were in the starting rotation as well. Uh, but in the 2003 World Series, just kind of fast forwarding to that. I mean, uh, Josh won the MVP. You're the hero of that game of that series, though. I mean, you you win the first game. I mean, you win two games against the Yankees, one in Yankee Stadium. And I would have to imagine, looking back on it now, was that indeed the highlight of of your professional career, winning those games? Just winning the series in general, just getting that ring. You know, I was that's your dream. It's not a lot of people are like, oh, I want to make the Hall of Fame. Which, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, you're the elite of the elite, but to me, I always wanted to win the World Series, and, and that's the reason I wore a uniform, not to pitch in all-star games, but to win a World Series, and that that moment when, you know, everybody says, oh, you you know, you could have been MVP, yeah, I could have been, but you know what, man, that last, Josh, when he, even the game he lost, he pitched 
better than I pitched in, in some of the games I won. You know what I mean? He, I think if I remember right, he, he lost two to one and it might've been against Messina, but, and then he goes out and throws a shutout. So, you know, what, what people don't look at is what Josh couldn't control. You know, he pitched fantastic the whole series and the NLCS. If it wasn't for Josh, we never would have made it. I mean, that guy was pitching out of the pen, starting on short rest. He, he was a, he was a horse and he absolutely deserved that. And, Thank God, you know, we, we won and that feeling when that when that last out's made, it's just I mean, it's not you can't even explain it. It's an incredible, incredible feeling. Mm. And, and by the way, uh, before we kind of close out oh three, is it fair to, to lump you and Josh and AJ sort of in that same you know, the these were the three Marlins pitchers. I don't know how close you guys are at this point. I know AJ went on to pitch for many teams over the course of his career. Same thing with Josh. In fact, Josh came back for uh, a reunion over the last couple of years of that 2003 team. Do you guys still keep in touch? Do you, you feel like we you guys do. Are yeah. Connected? yeah. Yep. We absolutely do. You know, I've been talking to AJ quite a lot recently in this quarantine and Josh, I've kept in touch with Josh. Me and Josh were pretty good friends throughout it all he called me when I went to Boston and, and kind of talked to me and, and got me over there so we've uh we meet up I don't see AJ as much I see Josh often just at golf like celebrity golf tournaments and, and St. Jude events and stuff like that but we absolutely do you know and people forget and AJ was hurt in 2003 because can you imagine if we'd had him in, in that rotation going through the playoffs and I mean he was AJ in my opinion had one of the best arms that I'd ever seen Go out on the mound every five days. It was it was incredible. Yeah, I mean, it had a great career and, and ended up finishing up uh, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia. Uh, would love to see him back in the in the Marlins fold as well. Uh, so two thousand. Yeah, I was, that, mm-hmm, Go ahead. I was going to make that when you're talking about that reunion, but we yeah. were actually having a baby. We were having our a baby boy, so I couldn't couldn't make it. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, listen, when I was thinking of doing a podcast and, and talking about 2003 and just going over the players that I haven't heard from in a while, like you were the top. I'm like, Brad Penny, like <laughs> we, we got to catch up with Brad Penny. It's been a long time since we've heard from him, especially on the Marlins, because people don't realize the career that you had after the Marlins. And, and I definitely want to touch on that as well. Uh, but 03, I, I don't know. Is it fair to say? Uh, Brad, that you were not given a chance to defend. I, I, look, I mean, Derek Lee was gone. And I think we all knew Pudge was going to get paid, and he did, and he left, and he, and he you know, went to the Tigers. Did you guys feel in that clubhouse that, that, that wow, uh, you know, uh, Jeffrey Loria, David Sampson, uh, they broke up the team? Like, is, is that fair at this point to say? Because I still feel like you guys have yeah, you know, we, in 04. We could have – it would have been interesting to see what we could have done because we were – and I don't, I don't understand a lot of the reasons why they dismantled us. Like I told you, and I'll be honest, I went. You, I mean, you, you've known me a long time. Pretty honest guy. I went to the GM and said, "I'll stay for three years for fifteen million. And literally, not too much longer after that, I was traded. So something was going on. I don't know. Like, and again, like I said, I don't know. I don't know what goes on upstairs. I don't know their situation. You know, that's. A little bit out of my pay grade so I we were just trying to make it work so we could stay together because it was such a fun team you know I don't know that I've ever played on a team that was that much fun yeah I mean the shame of it all is that you know you get to 2004 the team still look, looks like they're going to be good and and then you're traded essentially to the Dodgers were, were you informed before that was going to happen and of course there were a lot of reports about you guys talking about doing a long-term extension or was it just basically you got the call one day and you were gone I got a call, an interesting call. I was 
I think it was right around All-Star break, maybe. Yeah. And I was in the Keys fishing. I always went to the Keys in our off days to fish. And I got a call from my agent, and he said, would you rather pitch in L.A. or Arizona? And I'm thinking, well, why – why would you ask that question? I got drafted by Arizona, so I had, you know, feelings for that team. I loved Arizona, the area, and, and the stadium. And I, uh, I kind of was looking who was who had a better chance to win. I said, well, L.A. And, and dude, the next day I was traded to L.A., mm-hmm. which was it, it was a whole thing after I found out. You know, my agent ended up owning the Diamondbacks. He retired from being an agent and became part owner. It was more at the time became part owner in in the Diamondbacks, and it was a whole it was a whole there was a whole trade scenario where Randy Johnson would have been in L.A. had I chosen. I can't remember exactly how it would happen, but had I chosen, if Randy would have agreed to it, yeah, the thing pretty much yeah. except for him being in Arizona. I would yeah, <laughs> what a couple of World Series. <laughs> And yeah. in, the, in the Hall of Fame. But listen, uh, to your credit, you go to the Dodgers and, and maybe and, and you end up coming back to the Marlins. We'll get to that. But but to your credit, I mean, you put together arguably two of the best seasons of your career. You go to the All-Star game twice with the Dodgers. And and I mean, I, I can't think that you would look back on that, Brad, and say that you were disappointed. You end up uh, leading the league in wins, if I'm not mistaken, too. I know people feel differently about wins now, maybe, than they did back then. But you had two great seasons. They had a lot of good seasons, but two really great back-to-back seasons with the Dodgers. Yeah, and a lot of that had to do with, you know, the defense, the catchers, um, and pitching in Dodger Stadium. I mean, that was a, a really nice nice place to pitch with the weather-wise and, and I don't know. I just, I really, I fit with Dodger Stadium as a pitcher. I mean, the mound was, to me, perfect. Everything felt great there. And, and, you know, they gave me a great opportunity to come over there and play, play for a team that, to me, is like the Yankees of the National League. And a lot of history there. And, and you know, I had, you know, some of my favorite managers were there. Grady Little's one, one of the absolute best. And, you know, I had a great time. I played with the Jeff Kent and, and against the bonds over there a lot it was just i love that nl nl west man that's a that's a fun place to play yeah and and you ended up succeeding on a high level there i think that uh you you know that we got to get to this story brad because it's the one that everyone's making me ask today you know you you know that you come back to miami and uh and and you know the big controversy that surrounded the story but i I want you you have not talked about it much so i i gotta get the real deal as to what happened here now look we're in a different day and age we understand that but there was a lot going on back there that people didn't see. And it made national headlines, Brad, at the time when one of the clubhouse attendants was challenged <laughs> to drink the gallon of milk. Okay. Everybody knows the story yeah. by now. And you had some pretty strong comments afterward. Now, for people that don't know the story, a clubhouse attendant was challenged to drink a gallon of milk. Brad Penny was involved in the story. And afterward, the Marlins organization ended up suspending the clubhouse attendant for taking on the challenge. And I know that you were very upset at the time that that ended up happening. People think that you were a member of the Marlins at the time. You were actually a member of the Dodgers. So if you wouldn't mind right. clarifying the story, because it is one of the all-time Marlins stories and then how you felt about that afterward. Um, I mean, it was just – this goes on in every clubhouse in – in major league baseball it's just you get bored you're at the field all day it's your family you know and and 
you just try to be creative and find things to do and, and, and do it to where it's not dangerous, but the kid can make some money. You know what I mean? Where it's just fun. It's all in good fun. You're going to pay the kid no matter what. And he drank, he, he thought he could do it. He, he said, I can drink a gallon of milk in an hour. I said, okay, but well, you got to follow me around and you got to hold it down for an hour after. And he's like, no problem. And he, you can see the look on his face when he, I mean, this was a hilarious before he got in trouble. It was, it was one of the funniest things you'll ever see. This, this kid, he, he drinks the milk and he's got about 30 seconds left and just a little bit of milk, but you can see how bad he's struggling and he gets it down in time and he's like, I'm good. And he takes one step and I, I'll never forget. He puts his arms out and touches both sides of a doorway and he couldn't hold it down and it was like projectile it went flying but i mean jim tracy was our manager at the time and everybody was having a good time with this so the kid feels better he's he's doing he's fine he ends up doing his job i mean he he was a bat boy at the time and he continued to do it he didn't didn't miss a beat so we come back and find out that they suspended him for i want to say two weeks they did yeah at that time if you got caught with steroids as a baseball player, it was 10 games. And that was, it, it was, I mean, I was just, come on, you're, you're suspending a kid for something that basically it was my fault. I mean, I, I started this whole thing. And that was my comment in the paper. I was like, you get 10 days for steroids and two weeks for milk. And I think it wasn't just me. I think a lot of people on the Marlins got mad. A lot of people on the Dodgers and the kid ended up, I, I believe, making a lot of money from he went on to talk to those and he was calling me like which one should i go to i'm like bid it up whoever's gonna pay you the most go, go, go there but they passed the hat at minor league parks and it was all in good fun i was just shocked that that the front office got involved with something like that yeah and i and i would follow up with that it, look again these this day and age that sort of stuff i don't know you probably still could pull it off but people are a lot more careful and a lot more sensitive so who knows but uh well, you 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 took shots there at uh at the Marlins organization at the time did you have any relationship with uh, the owner Jeffrey Loria David Sampson yeah okay because they they you know in in terms of where their their names are in Marlins history uh, it's 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 not as pleasant, Brad, as as perhaps when it was when you were there in 2003. So, did you guys have good relationships with them? I did, and Jeffrey always treated me and my family well. And uh, you know, me and David had our had our issues, and he knows that. And I don't, and you know me, I'll speak publicly about anything. We we didn't have the best relationship, but towards the end, we were all right. And me and Jeffrey had a great relationship. I just and and when I say whatever I would say in the paper about the organization. They know me too. I would say right to their face. You know, I'm not. I don't believe in in the unnamed source. I don't believe in that. I think if you're going to say something, you need to put your name by it and stand by it. Because, I mean, everybody's got to stand for something, right? And if you don't stand for what you believe in, that just to me that says a lot about you as a person. Yeah, yeah. One of uh, somebody in the organization said Brad Penny is tough as a two dollar steak. That's what they said to me. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I, that's a big compliment there for sure. So um, it is, and that's that's just be, me being competitive, and it and it yeah. carried off of the field. It wasn't always in between the lines. Just something was going on that I didn't like. I would I would go talk to them about it. And you know, a lot of a lot of organizations don't like that, but I just can't I can't sleep at night if I don't get it off my chest. 
Listen, the Marlins don't win a World Series without you. Everybody knows that for sure. Okay, so, uh, so you know, now let's just kind of breeze through here. I know you've given us a lot of your time uh, toward the end of your career. You're, you know, you're moving on to a lot of different clubs. You end up, as you mentioned, back with Josh in 2009 with the Boston Red Sox. But, but the part that I want to get to here, it's interesting because you, you – listen, you played with a lot of Hall of Famers, Brad, but you played on the Tigers with Verlander and Scherzer. So, yep. I, I mean, like we're talking about two bona fide first ballot in all likelihood Hall of Famers. Uh, let's start with this. Who do you, who's the better pitcher between Verlander and Scherzer when it's all said and done? You know, at that time, I would say Verlander when I was there. Only because, listen, the American League and National League is two different leagues. And Verlander's been doing this the whole time in the American League. And don't get me wrong, they are both, like you said, they are both probably first ballot Hall of Famers. Um, but Verlander, I mean, I, that's one of the only guys. That, AJ did it as much as they would allow him to do it, and he could have been to that level if organizations weren't so protective. But for some reason, Verlander, I mean, it's just he's – Every single every single outing, he's in the eighth, ninth inning. I mean, the year I was there was incredible, absolutely incredible. I don't the better pitcher. I mean, stuff wise, they're both phenomenal. But I don't know. I, I would that at that moment in time, I would probably say Verlander was. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's hard to compare. I, I mean, you throw Verlander in the National League, I think his numbers are even better. Well, well, he ends up winning a World Series, and so this is your first your first chance now, Brad, to comment on all the shenanigans from the uh, from the Astros here in uh, in 2017. And boy, I mean, you were I cannot imagine if you were on the other side of the field of when this was going on uh, with the Houston Astros, and of course Verlander was on that team. Uh, I don't know if you've co- I haven't seen comments from you on this at all. What what did you think about what went on with the Astros and and sign stealing? And I'd love to know if what you guys did when you were with the Marlins or maybe any of the other teams that you played with and how serious you took it. Is it serious? Is it not, is it not serious? I mean, yeah, you know, and everybody that knows me knows that I would have just, my way of, of combating that was, okay, they know what's coming. They're still in the sign somehow. Call a change up. I'm going to throw a fastball hard in and, and you drill. And now that puts doubt in the whole dugout. Like, listen, you said a change up was coming. You could look at the video because there were several teams that were rumored, I don't have any proof, were rumored to have cameras in the center field fence. And once you do that, give a change up, throw a fastball and hit them, all bets are off for those hitters. They're not going to, it's dangerous. You know, somebody's throwing real hard and you're expecting something soft coming in, you can't move. So to me, that's the way to, and plus you're always mixing up your signs. I'm not real sure how. I guess people that were pitching just didn't care because even with nobody on base, you knew a first base coach, a third base coach, somebody was trying to get your signs. So, and I'd caught several first base coaches trying to relay. And and my answer to that was the same thing. Hit their hitter, walk by the coach and say, that's on you. If you keep doing it, I'm going to start throwing a little higher. Just a threat. I would never want to hit someone in the head, but just if I put that in the coach's mind, he's done because he doesn't want to be responsible for, for me throwing and hitting someone in the head and, and possibly seriously injuring someone, which I would never, like I said, I'm not going to throw someone's head, but I definitely hit people for that. But it, it's just, you know, everyone's trying to find an edge. To me, 
it is what it is. Mix your, mix your signs up as a pitcher. And this should be a lesson. Like from now on, people shouldn't just, even with nobody on base, don't just throw a sign down there and throw it because they're going to find out. They're going to steal it somehow. It happens at every level. It's happened on every team I've played for. There's always that guy in the dugout that's trying to find an advantage, and he tells the team. Uh, Brad, to, to close out the Marlins history part of this, in, in, you, you returned back to the Marlins and finished out essentially your major league career. I know you popped around a little bit and played overseas. Uh, but yeah. what, what brought you back to the Marlins, uh, the Miami Marlins, in, in 2015? And you played with Giancarlo Stan. You ended up playing with Christian Yelich. And then, of course, you played with uh, rest in peace Jose Fernandez as well. Did you, did you see all those players kind of becoming who they were uh, at the time where you were there, that last uh, go-around for you? Absolutely. You know, you talk about Fernandez and, and, man, what a good good attitude, happy-to-go-lucky guy. He was just smiling all the time. He was fun to be around for me. You know, a lot of people didn't like – when when you're that good like he was, people are jealous of you. So a lot of people don't like that. Oh, he's smiling all the time. We just lost. But that was just his personality. It was so much fun to be around. And, and it would have been really interesting to see how good he would have been because he was he was extraordinary. He was – he was special. So, you know, that was such a, for me, that was, that was heartbreaking on the fact that, man, he was just not only a special pitcher, but a special, special kid. So that, that really was, was awful. But yeah, you know, those other guys, Yelich, I mean, what a player he is. Um, Just fun to watch. And, and another guy who is a stand-up guy and, and, you know, a lot of people with the Marlins front office didn't, I guess, didn't like him being honest either. But, you know, I, I respect that. Guys in a situation, it's his life, it's his career. Only he knows how he feels, and, and he should be able to talk about it. But fantastic player. And and, and uh, last thing, and then Jeremy has one for you. And thank you so much, Brad, for all the time you've given. I really appreciate it. Of course. It. Um, look, I, I can't imagine that when you're on the mound in 2003 in the World Series – and you're facing off with the Yankees, and Derek Jeter comes to the plate, that I would have told you post-game, Brad, hey, look, this guy's going to own the Marlins in a few years. He's going to be the yeah. CEO of the Miami Marlins. What, what did you think when you heard that uh, Derek Jeter was buying the Marlins and becoming the CEO, and now he's been the uh, CEO and, and you know, part owner here for a couple of years? I was surprised, but, you know, Derek's the, – the way I competed in pitch, I tried to hate the hitter. Like to me, I had to dislike him very much to be able to to compete as good as I could. And Derek always made it hard. You know, I'd run into Derek every Super Bowl in Vegas. We would just me and my buddies would go, and him and his buddies would be out there. And we didn't go together. We didn't plan on meeting up, but I'd always see him. And you know, after the first time he met my friends, and I there was no chance of me doing this. The first time he met my buddies, every year after that, he'd walk by my friends and be like, "Hey, Chad, hey, Robin," and he never. I mean, he he made he never forgot one of my friends' names after meeting him one time, and that's just that's just the, the type of guy he was. He always went out of his way for everyone, including his opponents. And you know, I was kind of excited to see how it was going to go go with him there. And I know it's a process, and people get frustrated, but I think Derek Jeter knows enough about baseball and the organization that he came up with, and the people that he's bringing over know enough to to figure it out. You know, I was sad to see the Conines, the Andre Dawson's get let go. Cause those guys, they're all special to me in, in, in different ways. But you know, those guys to me in my eyes, I would keep around no matter what, but I think, you know, I think they're going to, they're going to get to a point to where that organization is winning on a continuous basis. I would imagine. 
All right, Brad, it's Jeremy here. Uh, going back to the very beginning with the Marlins. Uh, so I was a young kid. I was actually born in 1995. So I remember <laughs> in, in 2000 or 2001, I couldn't tell you I was either four or five years old. Uh, one of my favorite stories, we tell it around uh, this household quite often, was I was four or five years old and I went to a Marlins fan fest with the Florida Marlins. You were a young pitcher there, Beckett, you know, all these guys were there. And I was actually lucky enough to have a catch with you at four or five years old. And you turned to oh, me nice. and you turned to me and you said, Hey, you got a hose, kid. And that actually, no joke, and I gotta tell you, it changed the projection for me forever. I ended up going on to be a high school pitcher. I played a little club ball in college, and that was one of my ultimate favorite moments from childhood. Kept confidence in the back of my head anytime I struggled. Hey, Brad Penny told me I got a hose. Uh, so first of all, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, second of all, I just wanted to know a little bit about what it was like to play down here in regards to playing in front of the Marlins fans. You know, in 2003, you know, there, there's a lot of slack that gets given to, to uh, Marlins fans for attendance, whatever. But in 2003, I was there for, you know, the Pudge play at the plate, there for some of the, the Chicago games. Um, what was it like playing in front of the fans down here in South Florida? You know, it was – that's one thing that sticks out in, in my head in my career, and I'll never forget it. And it's the moment – we went on the road, I think, for, I don't know, 10 or 11, 11 days, and we won one game on that road trip and gained half a game in the Phillies, I think. And we came back, and we had four games left against the Phillies to finish the wild card. And we had been playing in front of, I don't know, realistically, I don't know, 3,500 people sometimes on a day game and I, I'll never forget I walked out of that dugout and there was like 60,000 people there and it was it was it was like mind-blowing to me like holy cow like okay now we're we got a chance to win they're going to support us and I'll never forget like in that world series and those playoffs when when you walk out of the dugout in Miami and everybody's chanting your name it was just like an invincible feeling like all my pain that I had from the season went away and it was like man we're gonna get this done it was impressive when they when they came out, it was – they were the most passionate fans I'd ever seen. And still to this day, they were more passionate. When they came out like that for the playoff run in the World Series, that was spectacular. Mm -hmm. Well, Brad, we'd love to see that, uh, you know, happen again here in South Florida. We'd love to have baseball back, honestly, in any way. Yeah, no possibly kidding. Could with, with, uh, with what's going on here for sure. And, and maybe at some point, Brad, I know a lot of people in the organization listen to this podcast for sure. Maybe at some point, Brad, it'd be great to have you back in the fold. And, um, you know, as, yeah, as absolutely, man. I'd love to be a part of that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you really, uh, you know, people look back and, and certainly I, you know, people walk, talk about 2003 and they talk about the videos that they post from 2003 and YouTube and everywhere that you can see the World Series. But folks, you got to go back and watch Brad Penny's two starts in that 2003 World Series. Um, you know, what, a, what an amazing run it was for the Marlins. And they don't get that done, certainly without you. Uh, Brad, uh, best of luck to you and your family, and your young kids, and we want you to stay safe and stay healthy for sure. And at some point, we would love to see you back here in South Florida and, uh, and celebrating the return of baseball. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it.